But you know what? Why God is taking his time? Because he is patiently awaiting the saints to come into this kingdom. You know what that means? It means every moment you have patience, even in your suffering, you are joining in that suffering with God saying, I know that God is not here yet because he's actually waiting for one more person. You are listening to the Classes Podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. This semester, we are teaching through the Book of Romans to accompany our Sunday morning series. We hope this class helps you find completeness in Jesus. Well, hello, good evening. Glad to have you guys with us tonight yet again. And uh, it's getting colder, which is great. Uh, but one of the things we want to do, as always, is to spend our time talking to God before we just talk about some of the things that, that, he, that He's revealed to us. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, uh, we pray that um, tonight, as, as all nights that we gather together, would be one where uh, we are blessed and you are glorified. And uh, Father, we just pray that your word would continue to shape us, change us, transform us. God, we, we ask that you would um, just continue to uh, really put the words in front of us in new ways, God. Uh, some of us have read this text a thousand times, and some of us are hearing it for the first time, but God, uh, we pray that its power is present nonetheless, and that your spirit would continue to shape us. Uh, Father, we recognize we have a dependence upon that, and we pray that tonight it would continue to to change us. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, um, we got a couple questions that we wanted to jump into, dive into first, uh, and then we're going to try to be a little more concise with these as much as possible, but sometimes we just can't help it. So, uh, But one, one question that I didn't, that somebody didn't turn in, but they asked me last week that I thought was really um, helpful that I wanted to, to make you guys aware of was uh, they, were, they were saying, we were talking about Romans 7 and how we, we felt like that was probably Paul talking about him himself and even an Israelite uh, before they had become a Christian. And I know that kind of like jarred some people because it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those things that maybe you've heard differently your entire life. Uh, but probably more than anything, it's also one of those texts that you read and you see yourself so clearly and you are a Christian. And so you're like, hold on, wait, so should I not feel this way, you know? And one of the things I tried to emphasize was actually it is okay to feel the struggle, you know? That was one of the things Michael and I both tried to emphasize is that the difference um, that really Paul's trying to, to show here is the difference between enslavement and struggle. But so it is, it is okay to feel struggle. And I think that's what we are all, we have this shared experience of. But one of the things, the question that's, that was asked was, well, I didn't feel that way before I was a Christian. I didn't even think about wanting to do the right thing or wanting to do the good thing. And I was like, yeah, that is a good point to make and one that I think might be worth clarifying. At least for us in, in chapter seven, the point is that Paul, in and of himself, as he's, as he's talking about this, um, he's talking about someone who is an Israelite, who has the law of God, who has the expectations, and yet is enslaved to his sin. And part of why that even resonates with people like us is because we actually do know the expectations of, of, uh, of, as Christians, of what God desires and expects of us. And so as we struggle through those things, at times we can feel that. So hopefully that brings a little bit more clarity is he's not just describing anyone who hasn't converted to Christianity. He's describing specifically himself as an Israelite who has the law and yet cannot obey it. Um, and so uh, as he becomes a Christian, as we pivot to chapter eight, you will begin to see a little bit more of how that the Holy Spirit brings freedom. Um, but 
the next question that we got uh, that Michael, I'm going to throw to you is um, one, somebody asked, are you teaching? Oh, by the way, I summarized some of these questions because sometimes there were lots of thoughts involved. So hopefully I've still get at the heart of what you were asking. Uh, but this way, uh, I'm hoping that it can um, be a little more explicit. So are you teaching we do not presently struggle with sin or that we should no longer sin if we are really Christians? Um, yeah, the answer to that question, the first part is no, we don't want to teach that you will no longer struggle with sin. And we probably, we kind of figured that this question arose out of our conversations in here on Wednesday. And then I would imagine that Mark's sermon on sanctification probably but a little brought a little bit of clarity to this. So I'll just quickly summarize what we we're both trying to say is that you will continue to struggle with and against sin. You will continue to feel temptation to varying degrees, depending on your situation in life and the habits that you formed. But the point of this text, kind of like Elijah said, is not that you're done struggling, but that you're no longer enslaved. So you're still going to find yourself in a fight, but it's always a fight you can win. And again, to be really clear, anytime you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted to do something other than what you think God wants you to do, and you're fighting between these two paths in front of you, you might think it is inevitable. In the end, I'm going to fail. And the purpose of these texts is to say, no, it's not inevitable. It's not. And in the end, you don't have to fail. You can actually walk the other path. So the first answer to that is, are we saying you will not struggle against sin? No, we're not. You will struggle, but you have the capacity to win because of Christ in you through the Spirit. The second question was, how exactly was it worded? I don't want to, it was just that kind of a clarifying should we, thing. Should we no longer sin if we're really Christians? Well, I mean, yeah, you should no longer sin or no, you should not sin. You know what I'm saying? Like the part of the point of becoming believers and continuing to follow Jesus is that we get sin increasingly out of our lives. And um, Paul talks about this in our texts. If you want a parallel passage, go look at um, John's letter that we call First John. He's very clear that those who belong to God sin less. And so your goal should be to eliminate sin from your life, recognizing that there's always gonna be things that you don't quite notice now that you might notice as you continue following Jesus, and then you can get rid of those sins. So it's not about expecting perfection, but it is about continually rooting sin out of our lives and living more in line with God's purposes for us as someone made in his image to follow his commands and decrees and to extend his love and goodness toward those around us. That's good. Uh, the next question, it says, if sin existed before the fall in the agency of spiritual beings, will they die? Are there different consequences for spiritual beings? So if you guys remember, we talked about basically like was somebody asked, was sin in the world before Adam? And I had said yes, because ultimately Satan and angels had fallen from God. They had sinned against God. And so they were. And so the question is, well, if sin leads to death and we know we can kind of see physical death, then what about spiritual death? What about spiritual things, spiritual entities? And, uh, and I kind of talked about even the fact that like we in and of ourselves as human beings are actually made up of body and soul, physical and spiritual. And really, um, I think that the angels are, are ultimately uh, those who have rebelled against God are going to experience death as well. Uh, but it is a spiritual death, not a physical death. Right, so so they don't have bodies that are going to decay or be buried in the ground, uh, but there. But really, death is a separation from the source of life. Well, what is the source of life? God. God has created all things. All things are in Him and through Him, and they, and He sustains all things. Right. So, being separated from Him is a sort of is, is death. 
And that's even, if you remember, Revelation talks about how in the end, like Satan and all of those who follow him will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is, says this is the second death um, because it's, the, it's for the spiritual um, component of what it means to be separated from, from God in that sense. Um, so uh, the third question that we got was, would you agree that oftentimes believers continue to sin because they still have a mindset, mindset of an unbeliever? So Michael, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, will we continue to, do, I, do we believe that Christians sin because they have the mindset of an unbeliever? Of course, it's part of what makes the question tricky is it depends on what you mean by mindset of an unbeliever. But in a general sense, I think um, I would say yes, at least some of the time. If by mindset of, an un, mindset of an unbeliever, we mean that this is a person who who really prefers their sin to God, prefers to do, we, I think doing things my way is going to bring me more lasting happiness than doing things God's way. If that's the mentality of a person that hasn't put their faith in God, then yeah, when we sin, sometimes we do so because even if we wouldn't be so bold as to say that, we actually do believe that, that we know better than God. Um, the other thing that a person could mean is if you mean by the mindset of an unbeliever, I'm just doing this because I'm human and this is what I'm going to do. Sort of a fatalist type mindset. I have no way around this. Uh, I, again, I would say yes, that sometimes we sin because we fall into that mindset. Well, I'm just human and it is what it is. But the point of the gospel is it doesn't have to be what it always has been. You can be made new. So again, the, if 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 there's a meaning to the question that I'm not necessarily understanding, then I might answer differently. But that's at least some of the things I'd say when I think about the mindset of an unbeliever and how I can slip into a mindset like that in situations where I may not be obeying God. That's good. Um, Mark, this one I'm going to throw to you. Uh, it says, all sin is sin, but why do some sins seem harder to overcome? Are there sins impossible to overcome? And will we be forgiven if we can't? So we're not after perfection, right? If I can quote myself from Sunday, we're after progress. We're after stepping into holiness and experiencing it and letting uh, holiness do that regenerating, rejuvenating work in our soul. So the question is, uh, all sin is sin, absolutely true. But the impact of all sins are not equal, and we all know this. The older we become, you can lie to your spouse, and that's a bad thing. You can cheat on your spouse, and that's a horrific thing. The consequences and impact of our individual sins have varying degrees of effect. Let's also factor in our individuality. Lust of the flesh, lust of the pride, and the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the three sins, kinds of sins in the world, 1 John. And so when you look at those, they don't all affect us equally but they all have an impact on our lives. They, they make a difference. So are some sins harder to overcome? I, I would say yes, because some of them uh, affect your flesh differently than your mind. So a lie doesn't affect you in the same way that a sexual immorality does. And this is why the, the world will say, well, the church makes some sins worse than others. No, the impact, the consequences are undeniably worse than others. That's why we can't treat everything equal, but you can't dismiss a lie, a white lie, if you will, as less uh, powerful or less significant. So if I could start over, I told these guys, let's make our first answer simple and our second <laughs> answer complex, and then I broke the law. So are all sins the same? Yes. Why are some sin sins harder to overcome than others? The impact it has on you individually. I I'll just be brief with this. I, I use this example a lot in coffee shops, to be honest with you. 
Um, if I passed, if I had a bunch of alcohol up here on the stage, some of you would be in today's terminology triggered. That has been a part of your life that you would look at that and go, that has got me in the past. Many of us would look at that and not have a lick of interest in it. That doesn't mean one of us are better than the other, does it? It just simply means that there are certain things that affect us all differently. Yet the impact is what we're talking about. And I'll go back to Michael's question, the third question. Um, would you agree that sometimes sinners continue? I think the, the reason many of us continue to sin is because we don't trust God. Deep down in the fiber of our lives, we believe that we know more than God, that we can't trust God, that our ways would work if we can just get around the edge of it. So I think that's one of the reasons that not all sin is uh, even. And can we, are some sins impossible to overcome, not by the power of Christ? Absolutely not. This is where we have to lean into our faith. This is where we open ourselves up and allow God to do a work in us. And we have to learn to trust him. We're going to overcome all sins. We're not going to be perfect before we die, but we can become more holy. That's a promise of the scriptures. And that's what we want you guys to hold on to. That's why we're in Romans, is to understand salvation is a beautiful thing in all of its complexity. And we want to understand that more and trust it more. So as we dive into our text tonight, one of the things we want to do, because Romans 8 is such a, uh, really a pivot in, in so many ways um, from from where we go next out of this book, we kind of want to just summarize how one, chapters one through eight fit together really quick. Okay, so if you remember in chapter one, Paul's introducing himself. Hello, I'm Paul. You haven't met me yet, but I'm be, going to be coming to you. Um, and I want you to know that I'm one of you, that I have been somebody who has inherited all the best parts of what God has offered, all the promises of God, the covenants, the prophecies, everything. But I've got good news that all of those things we longed for and waited for, they are finding their yes, their completeness in Jesus. And this is good news because it, fi it fixes the human condition. The thing that we all struggle with, that human thing of guilt and and shame and fear and anxiety and he's I, I have the I have the medicine and it's Jesus. But before I, I unpack how that medicine begins to help counteract these things, I need you to recognize that there actually is a condition that some of the things that, that like the worst parts of who you are are actually symptoms of the disease that we all carry within us. So he goes through chapter one and he talks about how really the whole world has been has made created uh, God that we worship idols, that we worship things in, that are in our world instead of the creator of our world. And because of that, it leads to doing things that don't correspond not just with life, but with reality as a whole. And, and we start to compromise both our relationship with God, and it really compromises our relationship with every single person. That's what sin disrupts more than anything else. It disrupts life and relationships. It's never just sin. It's also sin and death. They are always co-partners with one another. And uh, Paul's whole point is that the whole world is, is guilty of this. And then he goes to make sure the Israelites know that they're a part of that too. Like even though that God gave them the laws, this is chapter two, even though God gave them the laws, even though God gave them the prophecies, the oracles, the covenants, all these things, they are actually stand condemned as well because God gave them all of these things, but it actually showed them how bad they were. They weren't able to actually live, the, live things out. And so chapter three is like, okay, so what do we do? Who can stand? Nobody's righteous. Not one person can ever do this. How can we ever get to God? How can we ever be righteous enough to stand in his presence? How can we ever be good? 
good enough to enjoy who, all that he is and also escape the death that is awaiting us. And that's where he says, by faith. And he brings in Abraham in chapter four to give this illustration of what faith can do to make us right with God, to give us a status of righteousness. And then he begins to pivot to tell us what that means in regard to God actually making us righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter five. You want to take over? Sure, yeah. So having, having laid all that out for us in the first four chapters of the book, here's the problem, here's the solution. Just like Elijah said, there's this condition of sin that has contaminated the whole world, ourselves included. We can't fix ourselves. Jesus is the solution. He, as Elijah preached, he dies in our place and our faith in his grace is what enables us to receive salvation. And this is just exactly as God always promised he would do. And then having made that argument, he turns his attention in chapter five to kind of exploring all of what this means for us. Now that we've understood that we're saved by grace through faith, not works, and that this is the fulfillment of the covenant, let's talk about this salvation that we've stepped into. Let's continue unwrapping this gift that we've received. And so in the first half of chapter five, he really kind of summarizes all of the blessings that justification brings us and the ways in which it promises us a better life. We can look forward to the hope of eternal life with God. We can experience peace right now, and we can be confident in these things because of the love that God has manifested by sending his son to die in our place. And then from then, he goes on to this like multi-chapter celebration of freedom. And we've been talking about this the last few weeks. In the last part of chapter five, he wants to clarify that we are free from death. We do not need to be afraid of death anymore. We don't need to be afraid of death when we die, and we don't need to be afraid of the power of death as we live, because there's nothing that can take away the life that Jesus has made available to us. So we are free. And what's more, in being free from death, we transition into chapter six. We are also free from sin. And this is what we've been hitting so hard. Not that it's going to be easy or automatic, but we now have the capacity to be the righteous and self-controlled and joyful and peaceful and gentle and patient and loving persons that God made us to be. This is a real option for us. Then you go into chapter seven, which we covered last week, and he adds another thing that we're free from. We're not only free from death and sin, but also, remember what's next? We're free from the law. The law is actually something that God instituted for his people for a time in order to take them to the place where they could receive the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come, and so we're no longer under the law. And then he wants to make sure and clarify that he's not saying the law is a bad thing. The law is a wonderful thing that helps us understand who God is and what God wants for humanity. But the law can't actually solve the problem. It can point out the problem, but it can't actually make us capable of fulfilling it. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is even something that we can experience anytime we've tried to follow a list of rules. You ever make a to-do list and you're like, well, now I know what I need to do, but that's not going to guarantee that I do it, you know? And like the list sometimes is helpful for showing us just how impossible it is to do all of the things that we feel ourselves pressured to do. And so the list itself can't solve the problem of getting things done. It just points it out. Similarly, the law can't make you good. It just points out where you're not good. And so the law is a good gift, but we are so sinful that we took this good gift and used it for negative purposes. We actually allowed this gift of God's commands to give us new ideas about how to sin. And we actually allowed this gift of God's good commands to help some of us be self-righteous and look down on other people. And so the problem through and through comes back to exactly where Paul started, the condition of the heart. But the good news is the condition of the heart has a savior and that savior's name is Jesus. And that takes us up to the end of chapter seven. And so we're experiencing this celebration of freedom from death, from sin, the law. And he's actually now taken us back to this place of tension. So we're free from the law, not that the law was bad, but I'm so bad that I used the good law to bring about bad. I need to be saved. 
And then in chapter eight, we transition, and I'll just say a couple of sentences to preview, and then Elijah can take it from there. In chapter eight, what he's going to start out by saying is that God accomplished through Christ and the Spirit what the law pointed to but could not achieve. The law cannot forgive the fact that you've already broken the law. There's nothing within the law itself, within the commands that God has given us, that's actually going to solve the fact that I don't keep the law. So I still need forgiveness. And what's more, the law can't actually turn us into the kind of people who live out its teachings. It is powerless, given the depth of our sin, to make us good on its own. And so what Paul is saying now in chapter 8, in these very opening paragraphs, is that the sacrifice of Christ takes care of the forgiveness problem, and the presence of the Holy Spirit takes care of the transformation problem. And so, was that a dog? Awesome. (laughs) And so, um, again, in, in a sentence, what he's saying in these opening chapters of eight is that God accomplished through Christ and the Spirit what the law pointed us toward, but could not achieve. The law said, go there, and God actually then took us there through his Son and Spirit. So we're going to jump into chapter eight, and if you want to follow along with us, what I'm going to do, um, this is a big chapter. So what I want to do is we're going to, we're actually going to but basically cut this up into three sections. It's probably not even the best way to cut it up, but because it's so big and because our time is li- limited, this is how we're going to do it. You cut it up um, good. Thanks, Don't be talking on your I cut up. That. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to read through 1 through 17, and I want you to really like just follow it along with us because, again, Paul, he loves a good run-on sentence, and he loves to throw ideas over and over again, and so we got we to gotta just do this together. So here we go. Therefore, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, stand by, turning the page. I should have done that for you. Sorry, I was not more attentive. (laughs) Is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. 
So what I want to do is just kind of, again, long text there, 17 verses, but I want to start to unpack it a little bit because this is some of the greatest hope we could possibly have. And the, one of the first things I want to say about it before um, I even, I'm going to hand it over to Mark just to say a couple things, is you'll notice the very first verse, it says, there is now no condemnation. That word condemnation is used really two times um, within the book of Romans. The other time that it's used is in chapter five, um, verse, I can't remember, 19, I think, um, when it's talking about Adam and the condemnation we received from him. He's saying in chapter five, everyone has been condemned. Everyone has died because of the sin of Adam. Death has entered the world and everyone therefore has, is experiencing its effects. In chapter eight, it's saying, not anymore. Resurrection power is coming into play right now because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. That's what he's starting to unpack. Um, Mark, do you want to add more to this, to this part? What are we seeing through the spirit, the flesh, some of the things that, that he's talking about? Yeah, I, I think we could camp in verse one uh, the en entirety of the night, and that's not an exaggeration. The one thing I want to point out to each one of us is pay close attention to what Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have to let the first seven chapters of Romans define who is in Christ Jesus. Okay, if, if we turn this into a Christian bumper sticker or t-shirt, we've taken all the life out of it. We've turned it into a slogan instead of a truth. Who are those in Christ Jesus? Those who have allowed the Spirit of God to do the work of salvation in us, right? It's surrender. It's not a person who goes to church. It's a person who's surrendering to the Spirit. <clears throat> and there's no condemnation for those who find themselves by the work of God in the work of Jesus. That makes sense? Just nod your head if that makes sense. Because if we don't get this, that becomes a slogan that has no teeth. Then, as Eliza's pointing out to us, as we walk through these first 17 verses, you're going to see a lot of this juxtaposition of in the flesh and in the spirit, in the flesh and in the spirit, in the flesh and in the spirit. Are we letting the work of Christ work in us? Because if we do, the rewards are outrageous. If we don't, we're stalling and, and we are not, we're facing death and penalty and punishment. Once again, not perfection, progressing in holiness. So the juxtaposition here of this entire chapter, you have to take it in mind as you, as you listen to it, that he is comparing those who are trusting God for salvation and those who never have. And, the, and what the reality for both is, the condition of both is. And one of the things I want you guys to notice, even in the first four verses there, in the first four verses, Paul is unpacking why this could be possible that the Spirit could work in us. That's what he's addressing there. He's saying, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, in verse 3, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he's saying some things there. First off, our flesh is, is uh, basically warped by sin. And it has made it so that we, can, we are powerless to, to use the law to, to come to righteousness. So what is God's solution for this? Well, he's going to send his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And likeness is the key term there because he did not, Jesus didn't have sinful flesh like we did. He was not born from Adam like we were. He was born through miraculous conception, right? Through Mary, but he still had flesh and bones just like we did. He became a new Adam in that way because of how he was formed uh, through, in, in that way because of the form he took on, I should say. And now he has the likeness of sinful flesh, but he does not have sinful flesh. And that is key because God, Jesus is, is perfect. He is holy. And because of that fact, he is able to take on our 
sinfulness. He's able to take on our condemnation. He becomes the sin offering. He had no sin, and yet he himself became the sin offering. Because, uh, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So because of what Jesus took on to himself, the punishment, and because what Jesus gave to us, his righteousness, we now can live according to the spirit. The spirit can now take up residence in sinful people like us and make us saints because we have been purified by the blood of Christ. That's kind of what we've been talking about even through our series throughout the book of Romans. When Mark talked about uh, propitiation, the fact that like Jesus put himself on the altar and the wrath of God was moved off. When we talk about justification, this is all of this coalescing into this, these, first, these four verses trying to help unpack why the rest of what Paul is saying in chapter eight can actually happen because he's done something new. Do you want to add to that? Sure. First of all, nice use of the word coalesce. I like that word. <laughs> yeah, I, I would only add, um, in addition to the things that you're saying, a couple of details, you know, um, and, and I would preface those details by mentioning that when you read a paragraph like this, you might think, oh yeah, yeah, well, we've said this before. Like this is not the first time, even in Romans, that Paul has said Jesus died for your sins in, in various words. This isn't the first time that Jesus has been presented as a sacrifice. We've been seeing this over and over again. You think about the great passage in chapter three that talks about justification through his redemption and the atoning sacrifice. And there's some others as well. And it is true that Paul is repeating himself because he wants to keep bringing you back to the cross is the place where the problem was dealt with. I'm always reminded when I think about how Paul keeps drawing our attention back to this place where the problem was dealt with of what we used to do when my kids were small. So I don't know if you have small children, but if you have small children, then you know what I mean when I say it's amazing how much they're able to make their toys like spread throughout the entirety of the whole house. You know what I'm talking about? You get to the end of the day and you're like, how in the world are toys absolutely everywhere? Well, we would always have this thing at the end, at, at, you know, before they'd go to bed. It's like, all right, everybody bring all the stuff out from underneath the couch, out from underneath the desk, out from underneath the table, out from mommy and daddy's room, get all the junk on the carpet in the living room. We'd bring it all to that one particular place. And in that particular place, we would then deal with the problem. And I think what Paul is saying is God drew all of the sin to this one particular place, Jesus dying on the cross, and he dealt with the problem right there. And there's a couple of details. I'll just mention three for the sake of simplicity. One thing is I want you to notice the word you in verse two, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I think Paul's making an emphasis point there. And um, I've heard it likened to, you ever been to the museum and you're at one of those paintings and the eye just follows you around? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, do you not if you know him? It's like weird, but that thing just sees you. There's a sense in which Paul is wanting to single each person out and saying, this isn't just true of the room. This is true for you, that the law of the spirit of life has set you free, that the now, con now no condemnation thing is not just for them, but it's for you. Second detail I want to point out is he mentioned that it's the sin offering. And I want to note that as a very specific and important detail. There are five major offerings in Israel, and you can read about the five of them in Leviticus chapters one through seven. Uh, there's the burnt offering, which is like the main offering for sinfulness. Then there's a cereal or a grain offering that sort of completes the meal that you're having with God. Then there is the sin offering, and then there's a couple more. The peace offering is like, I just want to express my thankfulness to God. And then the reparation offering is like, I did a specific thing that I need to atone for. But the sin offering is the middle one. It's the one that he draws attention to right here. And I think that matters because the sin offering has a couple of interesting characteristics. For one thing, you actually read about this in the book of Numbers. It was an offering that applied to both Israelites and those foreigners who lived among Israel. So it's, this one can cover Jews and Gentiles. 
for a second thing, it's an offering that wasn't just about forgiveness, but was also about cleansing. It was not just, you're no longer in trouble, but you're no longer dirty. I'm going to take care of the guilt. I'm going to take care of the shame. For a third thing, and this is the key point that you guys can understand having thought with us through this book. It's an offering that is specifically for sins that aren't committed overtly or intentionally. It's a difficult Hebrew phrase to translate. It literally means sins not committed with a high hand. So I don't exactly know how best to get it into English, but the idea is there are times when we sin because we're just like, you know what? Forget you, God. I'm going to do things my own way. And there's other times when we don't really mean to, but we just fall into the trap. You guys know what I'm talking about? The type of sins that we think about when we read Romans 7 are the ones that have a grip on us. It's like, I didn't want to fall into the trap again, but I fell into the trap again. That is specifically the kind of sin that a sin offering is designed to take care of. And so Paul's saying, even the sins that you really don't want to commit, but you find yourself falling into, Jesus' death counts for those as well. And the last thing I want to point out is the word us in verse four. He says that he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in, everybody say us, us. Now that's not what you would expect. You would expect to say that the righteous requirement of the law was fully met in Jesus. And it was. But here he says the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us. And he's saying, we now are those who, whether or not we have the law by nature, follow the law because something has happened to us. And he fleshes this out, just like Elijah said, by drawing attention in the rest of the sentence to the Holy Spirit, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, which creates these two categories that I think Elijah is going to flesh out. There's flesh people and there's spirit people, people governed by the flesh, people governed by the Spirit. You want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, it says that when we, that, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, we're living according to the spirit. And that is a key point. The spirit living in us is what produces the righteousness for God. So that those feelings we get of, oh my gosh, but am I doing good enough? Like, am I putting, did it, like, are things changing enough in my life? The whole point of what Paul's saying is if you have the spirit, those things will happen. And actually, you will want to be a part of the process. Like you, I, this is my personal belief. If, if you read Philippians 2.12, it talks about working out your salvation, but this is God who works through you. I actually think that in some ways, we are God's greatest instrument for putting sin to death. Like God can use lots of things to put sin to death, uh, but, but one of the things he loves to use is your efforts. And part of what he's calling you to do is to try. And what, he, what he's not saying is that your failure means you're out. But he is saying that your, your, your effort will actually become your joy. And it will be, bring me glory. And it will ultimately be, be good. And that's what he's talking about. Even as the spirit begins to work in and through your lives, it actually becomes a worldview. This is what um, I know some, some commentators talk about how it's not just that the spirit is doing something in us. It's actually just the way we view the world now. Um, you, you have used the analogy. I'm pretty sure it's from like the coddling of the American mind, I think maybe, but it's okay. about the fish in the ocean, you know, and they're like, they don't even know that they're swimming in the ocean. I don't know if you remember, remember that. It just came to my mind. I was like, maybe that's a good, helpful analogy. But if you don't remember it, then I'll, I don't remember it. <laughs> I'll yeah. move on. I mean, I've heard that analogy used in different ways, but I don't remember a way that you're thinking about right now. Okay. Well, the whole point is that you don't even like a worldview is like when you exist and you don't even realize the things that you believe are a part of who you are. So my favorite quote from Malcolm Gladwell is to a worm in horseradish, the world is horseradish. And so the idea is that you become so engrossed in something that it's what you see everywhere you look. And it may be the idea that you're getting at. You ask a fish, what is, you know, what do you think of the water? And a fish is going to say, what do I think of the what? 
because they don't even think about water. It's literally just the, the, the world in which they inhabit, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you remember the first time you became aware of oxygen, but it's a funny experience as a kid when you're like thinking about science or maybe it's like a teenager, maybe you, maybe you uh, took, took some of the drinks of what Mark was talking about being up here on stage and you're thinking about the meaning of the world. That's supposed to be a joke. And you're like, <laughs> oh, oxygen's so cool. That's kind of what you're getting, yeah, right? Yeah, it's I, just, you have become a person who can't help but see the goodness of God. Absolutely. And that, yeah, I mean, the oxygen's a great example. In fact, I remember um, a couple months ago, I was talking to my sons about, literally, I was like, take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out. Did you even notice that there was air all around you that you are breathing in and out? No, you don't think about those things. That's what he's kind of talking about. When the Spirit takes up residence in you, you just start to long for what it what it already is working in and through you. You start to see the world differently. In fact, one of my, one of the greatest definitions of wisdom, actually, I think Mark gave one time and it stuck with me. It's you start to see the world as God sees it. You, get to, you can do the right thing and the good thing and know how to navigate hard situations when you can see your situation as God sees it. And that's the point. The Spirit is actually producing that in and through you so that every activity starts to become informed by something else that is now at work within you. And that's what the Spirit's starting to produce. Um, do you want to say more about this? Because we're hammering it pretty, pretty hard. Do you want to yeah. say? No, just, yeah. I mean, so it, to simplify, he's saying Jesus took care of the sin problem, and you're now transformed because Jesus has actually purified you and the Spirit's taken up residence in you. So there's flesh people and there's spirit people. And flesh people can't please God because their mind is oriented to the world. And spirit people can't not please God because their mind is oriented to the things of God. And then he essentially says, good news, y'all, you're spirit people. You guys are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. Now, you still have a mortal body that's going to die, but that too will be resurrected. But that doesn't mean that the spirit of God is not alive in you because the spirit of God is. And as you focus your attention on the goodness of God, and as you commit yourself as best you can to walking in his steps, you will become better at it. It will become second nature to you. You will become more like Jesus as you pursue the spirit who's living in you. What'd you say? So I have a question for you too, and I think it's on track. Um, so... And I'm, I'm in agreement, okay? But we realize that we may be entering into, I think we may be entering into land for some of you that believe in the concept of carnal Christians. Like there are some Christians who are just never going to get it figured out. And I want you to be cautious about that. So I'll ask, in the scriptures, it says, don't grieve the, square, the spirit or quench the spirit. So do we draw this big delineation that you're in and gold and they're all lost? Or is there a challenge to the spirit-led believer that you can grieve and quench the spirit that brings life and healing and all of these benefits to us? Yeah, I mean, I, I love those, I love those, those images, those, met, those words, quench and grieve are so critical. When I think about the sermon you preached, you tell me I'm free from sin, so how come I don't? know it or how come I still sin? I picture like, let's just say, let's say I'm, let's say, you know what, you're going to be the, you're going to be the bad guy in this analogy. Let's say I'm a slave on Mark's property and he owns me my whole life. I've grown up on his property and he's always bossing me around. Michael, mow my lawn, you know, come rub my feet, which is really gross, but you know, do this. And I have no choice. I'm literally a slave in his house. So I have to do whatever he says to do. But then Elijah, next door neighbor, Elijah's like, man, I feel bad for that guy. So Elijah actually buys me from Mark. And he's like, I'm going to set you free. Now here's the deal. 
Um, I know that you probably don't have a lot of connections, so you're free. You can go wherever you want. But if you want to like take care of my land, that's the skill set you have. I got an apartment out back. You can live there. You can be free. You can come and go as you please. I will pay you a living wage and you're welcome to work my land essentially. And I'm like, this is a great deal. Like this is what I'm good at and he's going to take care of me. And now I'm free. So I work for Elijah. And now I go outside and I'm mowing Elijah's lawn because I'm being paid to do it. It's my job. And out comes Mark on the back porch. He starts yelling at me, Michael, mow my lawn, you know, come rub my feet, all this stuff I've always heard my whole life. And I know that I'm free. I know that I don't have to do it because he doesn't own me anymore. But there's a part of me, every time I hear that voice, that almost instinctively moves toward it because my whole life I grew up listening to that voice and having to obey. So in that sense, the voice of the world, the voice of my own flesh calls out to me and says, Michael, do it this way. And I don't have to listen to that voice. And I don't have to listen to the enemy. And I don't have to listen to the world. But I sometimes find myself drawn in that direction. And the quench piece tells me, the Lord has given me water. Like Elijah's given me water over here. He's given me everything I need. But I quench that goodness that he's offering me when I go back to my old overlord. In the same way, Elijah wants good for me. Like he wants me to experience the freedom. And so when I go back into the slavery, he's grieved by that because I'm and missing out on something that he's wanting to provide me. So in that sense, I see it like that. Yeah. No, I don't think we're locked in, man. I think we're free, free, free. And I think obviously James makes that clear too, that faith without works is dead. We're not saying works leads to faith or even works leads to God loving you more. We're saying that faith, believing in who God is, trusting in who he is and what he's done and starting to believe the things that God believes, like starting your mindset now being changed to see the world as God sees it, will just start to make you do those things. It will produce those things. So there is no way to both uh, say that you believe in God and yet enjoy the things that God hates. Uh, at one level, that will start to change. And in fact, um, Paul, or Paul kind of alludes to this a little bit in, in terms of how he starts to describe how the Spirit works in our life. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You're not there anymore. Kind of what Michael was saying. You've gone to a new master, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So even there, I kind of liken this to like almost if you recognize that your body is still a body of death. This is kind of what Paul's point is even in chapter seven, like this is the body of death. Who's going to rescue me? And at one level, Paul is also saying this body of death, I still have. It has to kind of be done away with so I can get my new resurrection body. It's almost like you're a free person, but you still have chains on. Like not in the sense that you're chained to anything, but like almost like you have fetters on your ankles, right? And they are kind of reminders of this old master that you used to have. And sometimes you forget that the actual chain that once bound you is actually not there anymore. More, but you still operate as if it is. Like, and one of these days, God is going to come. And he's going to break those shackles, and you're going to realize once and for all that you will never have to live under that master again. And that's when you have a new resurrection body. But at least for now, the Spirit is doing something in and through you that is producing those things, and it it will. There's the, not, the question is not whether um, you know it will or not, because I mean, that's his, that's his promise, uh, that you are going to be changed in and through what he's done. And the last thing that I want to point to within this verse is specifically how, because the Spirit of God lives in us, we are actually now being changed into the family of God, which is a really amazing thing. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation 
not to live according to the flesh. We have to live according to the spirit and kill the things of the flesh with our spirit. And here's why. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So let's change Michael's analogy. Let's say you're in an abusive home. Let's say you have a father who just does not treat you well at all. And and actually instead kind of orphans you. And now you're out on your own, but all you know is how you fought your father treated you. And so you just perpetuate a cycle of brokenness. But then a new father comes along and he sees you and he says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you my son. And as you come into his house and he starts to treat you and love you well, even when you don't treat him well, you start, his, his love starts to do things in and through you that you never expected before. Your heart starts to become softened. You start to want to, want to please him. You start to want to love those other family members that were already there. Like this is what Paul is saying, that a place has been made for you at the table. And when you start to have down, sit down, when you start to enjoy that food, when you start to enjoy the love of the father, that things will begin to change. So much so that you will no longer be an orphan in this world, but you will be a son of a king. You were once an orphan of a, of a, of that was made like basically a, a poor and in slavery. And now you have become a prince. You have been invited into a kingdom and now you can talk to the God of the universe and call him father. And that is a significant transfer of allegiance, a transfer of, of love, and a transfer of, of dedication as now you begin to understand what has been given to you and therefore what you so willingly give back to God. And that's part of what the Spirit does in and through us. Do you want to say anything else before we move on to the next part? I just have one sentence I want to, because I pointed out in verse 1, the in Christ piece. I also want in 14 tell you that those are in Christ still have to be led by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? For, in, instead of going, I don't know if I am or not, you can be. That's Michael's whole point. Elijah freed him. He can live in freedom or he can live in slavery. But it says here that if you are led by the Spirit, you are the children of God. There is a certainty that the presence of the Holy Spirit brings us. It's affirmation. And if there's one thing as a pastor, I want every one of us to have in our soul is God's not up in, my mom used to make this noise when she got irritated with us. I don't know if it's a female thing or a parent thing. It was my mom's thing. She would tisk and it would drive us crazy because it was like, eh, wrong. And what you did, it was, I don't have a God who's in heaven tisking at me every moment. I have a God believing. I have a God speaking. I have a God encouraging, a God edifying, correcting, rebuking, exhorting me. Do you get all the verbs there? This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. So church, we can be led by the Spirit. So let's be led by the Spirit. Because then we fully realize what it is to be children of God. All the affirmations that come with this. This is so rich and I'll get to preach on it Sunday. (laughs) Good. Okay, we are running out of time. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just, I'm not going to read through this whole thing. I'm just going to read through little chunks and we'll just kind of give a lightning round version of how we get through this because uh, we have to go through chapters 9 through 11 next week. (laughs) So I know, but it, it really, we have to. And here's what our challenge to you is going to be is to read through it before next week because if you just try to chunk that thing out, then you really get lost in the weeds. So Uh, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to start to read through it, and then I'm going to pause, and we can give some different reactions. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it 
and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think he's just saying, again, do the math. So that word, I consider, is the same word I mentioned from chapter 6, verse 11, where he says to consider or to count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Here he's saying, consider that your present suffering aren't worth comparing. Do the math. However much your sufferings are, and that number may be huge, he's saying it's actually, it's so much smaller than the bigness of the number that represents the good that is coming our way that they don't even compare. And then he wants us to know that not only do we get to look forward to full redemption, but our redemption is tied up with the redemption of all creation. God does not intend to scrap the earth and for us to all bounce around on clouds in the sky. He intends to renew the earth in such a way that this place is what he always designed it to be, and we get to enjoy it and all of its goodness. Everything good about this world better without everything bad. That's what we have to look forward to. No suffering, no suffering is greater than the future glory that you will have. And you know who shows us that most emphatically? Jesus, who in the worst moment of human history took on every single person's sin of the entire world upon himself, a person who was innocent and God and divine and all those qualities. And yet he took on all of those things, was, was tried and executed for crimes he did not commit. And yet the worst moment in human history also brought about the greatest moment in God's activity because it, what, of what it brings to every person who comes to believe in him. There is greater glory still. Let's move. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Mark, you want to throw any thoughts in there? I don't understand that word patiently. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think what Michael said is, uh, if I think you said that our redemption is tied into creation's redemption, and I'll only flip that the other way around. Creation is tied into our redemption. That concept of glory is so profound in Romans 8. It's, it's smacking me on my very large forehead over and over as I've studied this chapter. This concept of hoping for glory. Just imagine what creation is going to do when it explodes in its perfect realm. What will the roses look like? What will strawberries taste like? What will it be to be able to not get sunburned? I would love that joy. The small things that my body, the decay of, cult, of uh, creation all around us and Paul is saying, do you understand that the power of God in salvation, he's going to restore and recreate everything. This garden again concept keeps coming to mind. So we get to this spot. Why, why do we wait for that? Now, if your imagination turns off and you get caught up on no more mosquitoes or no more sunburns, that's okay. But what you really want to understand is what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the promise of God. This goes back to that whole issue that Michael talked about in chapter 7. Do we trust God? Is he good enough and wise enough to be trusted? And if he can bring salvation in this dark world into our lives with the first fruit of the Spirit, that affirmation of the Spirit as he leads us to tell us we are his sons and daughters, that there is a future for us, that God is going to restore all things and we're going to reign with Jesus as an heir of all the promises that Jesus has earned as the first son. Does that give you reason to hope? When the world knocks the wind out of you, when cancer strikes, when you stand at the grave of another person you love, we don't see it now, do we? But we can. 
the Spirit will speak life and hope. And we cannot just whisk it away like it's not real. We can face the real decay of this world today with hope. But listen to what Paul says. This is why I tried to make a joke at the beginning. You have to be patient. What if you're not patient? Trust in God, not in yourself. Remember who's telling us this. Hold on to who he is. Can he do it when you can't? We all know the answer to that, except in a moment of grief and suffering. It's tough to believe anybody cares. And what's our first reaction? Then I have to fix it. What do you do when you can't fix it? You wait. You wait patiently. Or as a buddy of mine, I've stolen it from him because he's the one who said it in Bible college a thousand times to me. He said, I'm going to bet my life on Jesus. Which means sometimes you have to. Does that make sense? I know I'm asking a rhetorical question to nice, but I want you to understand. Do you understand where our hope comes from? It doesn't come in your strength. It doesn't come in our answers. It comes in the character of God. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit speaks to us and the Holy Spirit is guiding us into the word and into the promise of who God is. And if you've learned nothing in Romans 1 through 8, Jesus has demonstrated he's got this. And if he's got this, he's got us, if that makes sense. And I want you to notice too that the creation is groaning. We are groaning. There is a longing for this to happen because we are experiencing things in this life that are uncomfortable, that are difficult. This is why it says in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That our sufferings, when we suffer, and we have this longing, this groaning for him to come, we are actually joining his suffering. And I think partly is if you look at that word patient, there's another word that you, that, there's another place that that word patience is used. It's in Second Peter 3. It's when uh, Peter is writing and saying that time is not time to God like it is to us. Like a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day to God. But you know what, why God is taking his time? because he is patiently awaiting the saints to come into this kingdom. You know what that means? It means every moment you have patience, even in your suffering, you are joining in that suffering with God saying, I know that God is not here yet because he's actually waiting for one more person. That my suffering is going on just a little bit longer because one more person is coming into this kingdom today that wouldn't have been there yesterday. That one more person might have been your family member. It might have been your neighbor. It might be someone in India. But the point is that we are suffering, actually. We join in with Christ because we are waiting just a little bit longer for that suffering to be totally ended and wiped off the face of the planet. But we are waiting patiently in hope of the glory that will come. The creation groans. We groan. One more thing groans. The Spirit. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That is deep, man. I don't necessarily want to try to dig too deeply into some of the details. They're really worth thinking about. But honestly, even if I could offer a perfect explanation, and I don't know that I can, it would still be something that really you only grasp as you continue to meditate and think through the sentences that Paul wrote in that subparagraph. So the one thing I'll say is, if you ever find yourself so frustrated with the brokenness of the world that you don't know what to pray, that's not necessarily evidence that something is uniquely wrong. Something is indeed wrong. The world is broken. But you're actually finding yourself at the very center of where God is active, and that doesn't mean that it's going to feel good, but it means that when you find, let me say this again, um, when you find yourself at the very end of your ropes, so much so that not only do you not know what to do, but you don't know what to pray, that's a place where the Spirit enters in and offers these wordless groans. 
And I can't say that I've ever heard an audible groan from the Spirit, but I've been in some rooms with some families in this church where I heard some sounds that seemed like they came deep from deep within persons who were in pain, and they expressed something that was almost more articulate than words. It expressed a depth level of pain that really only comes through in these sounds that you make when you've lost something that is so dear to you, you can't imagine life going on. And I think what Paul is saying is this very experience of suffering with Jesus is actually not proof that the gospel is not true, but it is instead proof that the gospel is true because it testifies to this deep cry within our hearts on behalf of the world and on our behalf, the spirit offering. That, um, that calls us to something more and better. So I don't know if I'm being particularly clear, but I hope you see what I'm saying here, that Paul's trying to close the loop in such a way that those moments of pain are moments when you experience the Spirit, whether you think you are or not. I, and I agree. I think that not to be devotional or too, too bottom shelf. Okay to be devotional. But, <laughs> but there's, there's two words in this world that can be the emptiest words you'll ever hear. I know. And yet other times, you know in your heart, don't you? There's nothing more powerful than a person who's gone through what you're going through who says, I know. And when I've read this my entire life, I believe that the Holy Spirit sometimes when I just say, ah, God's like, Mark, I know. I know. You don't need to give me something to do. Just trust me. And that's when the Spirit gives you that affirmation. When the words I know come from God, you know he knows. And so this suffering for his kingdom, that I love your analogy or your illustration, that my horrible day today, because it opens an opportunity for another person to come to know Christ, isn't it worth it at the end of it? And that's what we hope for. We'll go on in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Want to speak to that? Um, sure. I don't know how deep you want to go. Um, <laughs> so Romans 8, 28, 28 should, if it's on your list of favorite verses, then keep it on there because it's a verse that you're never not going to need. Or I should say it was a verse that you will need when you need it. And so you might as well lock it in before you get there and don't have it. You understand what I'm saying? And all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I don't think that to say everything happens for a reason is a particularly clear way to articulate what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. I prefer, and I would suggest that instead you say something like, anything can be redeemed. I think that's the point of this statement, is that nothing can happen to you that God cannot redeem. Nothing can happen in, around, or upon you that God cannot somehow rework for his purposes for your good. And if you're wondering what that good is, he actually defines it in the very next verse. He says, for those he foreknew, those who belonged to him, and he always knew they would belong to him one way or another, he predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. If you've been around, um, you know, church circles and your, you know, theology circles, then you're probably aware that predestination is a word that people like to argue back and forth about. And some of those arguments are perfectly beneficial and worth having. We have some of those arguments ourselves. And when it comes to this word, uh, predestination, sometimes some people would say that God predestined the persons who will be saved. Other people say that God predestined the plan for how anybody will be saved. Either way, either way, what this verse is saying is that those who belong to God, however that works out, God has decided ahead of time that they will become like Jesus. So God has already determined that those who believe in him are going to be transformed into his image. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
If you're a person who believes in Jesus and belongs to God's family, he has decided beforehand that all the things that happen in your life are actually going to bring about for you the very best possible fate you could hope for, and that is one in which you look like Jesus. The other thing I'll say about this passage is that it's describing the relationship between God and people from a particular point of view. I'll try to make this point really quickly. I think that, um, so let me use these two as an example. If you guys would face each other. So um, you had to be the bad guy last time. Sorry, it's like kids looking at each other. So in this case, Mark is God and Elijah is a saved person. You guys are really close. This is adorable. So some passages of scripture actually look at the divine human relationship like this, and they describe the human side of things. You think about places like Acts 2.38 that say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. The emphasis here is on what the person, the human being, does in order to receive the gift. Other passages back up and look at the whole of it. So you think about, like in Ephesians 2, that says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we're trying to be pretty comprehensive and a text like that. This verse is one of those that actually looks at the relationship from this point of view, and it's drawing attention to God's role in this relationship. And it's not trying to say everything. This verse isn't trying to say everything that needs to be said about the relationship you have with God. It's saying when you look at it from this vantage point, you were looking at a God who is utterly and totally reliable, and he's figured out this thing from beginning to end. You guys don't have to look at each other anymore. So what Paul's point is that you can be fully and deeply confident that God is big enough to bring about what he's promised, and you better believe that he'll do it. So there's a lot of loose ends that could be tied up, and I don't know, we may want to address some of those tonight, or we may want to leave those unaddressed, but we want you to hear, we all want you to hear the heart. Even though we disagree about some of the details, we want you to hear the heart of what Paul is saying, that God will bring about the things that he has promised for you, and these promises are as good as him, and that means they're pretty solid. I think uh, just 28 with what Michael's saying is if you focus on this part of that verse, he does, he works for the good of those who love him. He works for the good. What's the good? What's the good of suffering? What's the good of waiting? What's the good of pain? What's the good of sacrifice? It makes us Christ-like. That's the ultimate goal. When you understand what God is forming us into, you can, I believe, emotionally tolerate more suffering Instead of saying he's going to work out all things for the good of a person who wants to be comfortable or rich or famous or well-liked, right? You see the difference there? What is the good work that God is doing is he's making us complete in Jesus. He's bringing it all together. As, as Elijah likes to say, he's the, Jesus is the yes to every promise. There it is. It's found in him. And so this, how God goes about that, I like how you say that, Michael. Uh, we're going to let God work on the details. We're going to try to understand them and, and argue about them and disagree and sharpen one another. But at the end of it, I think we got to keep our hearts focused on what is the good work God is doing in us. Never forget that because he's promised, I'm going to get it done. And it's going to be good for you. Not always in this lifetime, but it's going to be good for you in the end run. We are running short on time, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to just put the last part of Romans 8, uh, verses 31 through 39, into next week. It actually works out great, because part of the question that Paul's even trying to answer there is, um, so what if, like, can God leave us? And can, can God fail at doing what he promised? And can our, can our sufferings ultimately lead to us being separated from him or whatever else? And ultimately, Paul's answer is going to be, nope. And then everyone's going to ask, but what about Israel? Like, they kind of seem like they might be separated from you now in chapter 9. And so we'll actually, we'll couple those together next week. But at least for now, um, before I wrap it up, any questions that you guys have um, about this text as a whole?
or just thoughts or anything. Yeah. In 1 John, it says there's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And every sin you can imagine falls under one of those three umbrellas. Okay, so some of them are sins of the, of the flesh, and some of them are, Does what I, don't, you, I don't want to say sins of the spirit. I don't, I don't believe that it's that. Some have complications that bring addiction, physical addiction, and physical response to them. We know that the brain is rewired under certain ha- habits that take place. That, that's all I was trying to differentiate. Does that make sense? Correct. Correct. I, I don't find any evidence in Scripture to say that. Anything else? Any other questions? Okay. I'm awesome. going to give you guys a preview of next week, all right? Wait, before we do that, I just want to say this text as a whole in general, I want to, one point I wanted to make, um, because we often don't make this general um, acknowledgement enough that this, this text is very Trinitarian. So when we talk about the Trinity and how that is a core fundamental belief um, of Christianity, it has been since its inception. Like this is what God, Jesus is revealing to us about the Father and the Spirit and how all those things work together. Um, like this text, you can really see it come to life in these inseparable activities that each person in the Trinity actually um, brings about in terms of really all, all of salvation and all of what we're being invited into. Um, do you want to say anything more about that before you do that? No, sorry. I should have done this before you did that because that's a better oh, really? last word. I mean, this is <laughs> true, I think, but it's, it's silly and true. Okay, and I love your last ahead, word. Go ahead. Oh, I just felt like I'm ruining your moment. <laughs> no, so, it's, okay, it's, if, you, if Joplin and Japan had a baby, <laughs> that baby would be Joplin, all right? And if you remember Joplin, then you can understand Romans 9 through 11. That's all I'm going to say. I'll explain <laughs> what I mean next week. <laughs> but yes, the Trinity's awesome. And when you look at the salvation that Jesus brings, you know, he, what he's saying is so beautifully true. That when you think about calling God Trinity, does that feel like pretty abstract? Like when I, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe that. And I know that's important, but I don't really know what that means. We want you to think of Romans 8. Because Trinity is a shorthand way of saying that God has saved us by sending the Son and the Spirit to bring about what nothing else could accomplish. And when we look at the salvation that he brings, we see through that to the God behind it, a God who is in fact triune, Father, Son, and Spirit in one. And when we think about the Father, the Son, and Spirit in one, it reminds us of the salvation that he brings. I was, that was my best shot. Trying to bring it back to where you, you had us, man. You, did you had it. us in you such did a it. good place. You did it. Uh, if you guys do have more questions, obviously feel free to come up and and please leave them, check, uh, write them in the box. You know, if you guys have more questions about sanctification, um, our role versus God's role, or some of these predestination pa- passages, uh, we we do love those things. But obviously, uh, the most important thing about what what the text is saying is is really about what God is doing in and through us. And so, while we are not afraid of those topics, we want to make sure to hit the most important parts of what God is actually trying to encourage us with. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll I, go. I did yes. get a question that we need to oh, answer. Oh, okay. What's did up? you guys plan blue jeans and olive green tops? <laughs> the answer is no. Just mediocre minds think alike. That's right. You know what I'm saying? That's right. <laughs> um, but next week, we will be wearing flannels if you guys would like to join. So... Uh, No, I'll pray for us. Father God, you are good, and we're so thankful for your spirit living in us because it accomplishes more than we ever could. Um, We had a problem, God, and you came and and saved us. And Father, we pray that uh, through through seeing Jesus clearly, through uh, the spirit 
really putting to death the, the misdeeds of our bodies, God, that we would just be conformed to the image that you have called us to, Father. Um, God, we just pray that you would help us to walk out of this room tonight, um, taking one more step toward you. God, that's all you ask, just one more step, one more step. And God, we pray that today is, is one of those days. We love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this class. We hope it helps you find completeness in Jesus. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.